crowds stopped in the desert of Paran. This was the first time the people moved for their camp. They moved it the way the Lord commanded Moses. Three divisions from Judah's camp went first. They traveled under their flag. The first group was the tribe of Judah. Nashon, son of Amminadab, was the commander of that group. Next came the tribe of Issachar. Nethanel, son of Zuar, was the commander of that group. And then came the tribe of Zebulun. Eliab, son of Helon, was the commander of that group. Then the holy tent was taken down, and the men from the Gershon and the Merari families carried the holy tent. So the people from these families went, were next in line. Then came the three divisions from Reuben's camp. They traveled under their flag. The first group was the tribe of Reuben. Elazur, son of Shedeur, was the commander of that group. Next came the tribe of Simeon. Shalumael, son of Zerushadai, was the commander of that group. And then came the tribe of Gad. Eliasef, son of Duel, was the commander of that group. Then came the Koath family. They carried the holy things from inside the holy tent. These people came at this time so that other people could set up the holy tent and make it ready the new camp before the people arrived. Next came the three groups from Ephraim's camp. They traveled under their flag. The first group was the tribe of Ephraim. Elishama, son of Mihud, was the commander of that group. Next came the tribe of Manasseh. Gamaliel, son of Pedajur, was the commander of that group. Then came the tribe of Benjamin. Abidan, son of Gideoni, was the commander of that group. The last three tribes in the line were the rear guard for all the other tribes. These were the groups from Dan's camp. They traveled under their flag. The first group was the tribe of Dan. Ahiazer, son of Amishadai, was their commander. Next came the tribe of Asher. Pagael, son of Okran, was the commander of that group. Then came the tribe of Naphtali. Ahira, son of Inan, was the commander of that group. That was the way the Israelites marched when they moved from place to place. Hobab was the son of Reuel, the Midianite. Reuel was Moses' father-in-law. Moses said to Hobab, We are traveling to the land that the Lord promised to give us. Come with us, and we will be good to you. The Lord has promised good things to the Israelites. But Hobab answered, No, I will not go with you. I will go back to my homeland and to my own people. And Moses said, Please don't leave us. You know more about the desert than we do. You can be our guide. If you come with us, we will share with you all the good things that the Lord gives us. So they began traveling from the mountain of the Lord. The priests took the box of the Lord's agreement and walked in front of the people. They carried the holy box for three days, looking for a place to camp. The Lord's cloud was over them every day. And when they left their camp every morning, the cloud was there to lead them. When the people lifted the holy box to move the camp, Moses always said, Get up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your enemies run away from you. And when the holy box was put in its place, Moses always said, Come back, Lord, to the millions of Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. It was fun having 
Burt Holmes back in the bass section today. I enjoyed <laughs> Sometimes it gets lonesome back there, you know. Uh, and so uh, that was, that was a, a piece that, that Burt knew well, and so we asked him to jump in, and jump in he did. So thank you very much, Burt. I appreciate that. Um, let's join our hearts together in prayer. Lord God, you are uh, the maker of heaven and earth. You are the God who was before time. And you are the God who has all of time in view. You know where we are going. You have plans for us. Father God, you have prepared a place for us to live with you forever. I thank you for giving us warning of what is coming. I thank you for foreshadowing the truth of eternity in Scripture. Thank you for the testimony of Jesus and the apostles to the coming day when the saints will gather with you uh, in New Jerusalem and enjoy your company forever and ever. Lord, I pray that uh, as we journey in this life that we would keep that goal in mind. I pray that as we um, live this life that we would be preparing for that day when we see you again. Lord, I pray that we would be uh, strengthened and encouraged knowing that you have our lives under control and that uh, things are um, secure in your hand. We need not worry. I pray that we would have confidence in you and that that confidence would be counted to us as righteousness. Father God, you have given us all that we need uh, in the pages of scripture for our life and our faith and we pray that as we turn to it now uh, that you would speak a word to us and I pray that we would be strengthened and encouraged for the journey ahead. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, on, on March 1st, I had my dissertation defense, uh, which I believe will be the last academic examination I ever take for the rest of my life. I sent my, yeah, yeah never again, I will, I will never again sit for a test. It'll probably just be blood tests for the rest of my life. I sent in my dissertation to my director on December 30th of last year. He read through it. He was satisfied. He sent it off to the rest of the committee, and they read it. And then on March 1st, by the magic of the internet, we had a Zoom defense. And for three hours, my readers peppered me with questions about why I had said this and why I had not said that. Felt a little crowded there, you know? Feel like someone is going to jump me. Uh, one of the sentences in my dissertation said this During the Feast of Booths, Israelites lived for, lived for seven days in tents to remind themselves they were once nomads in the wilderness. And one of my examiners said to me, What do you mean they were nomads? Now, all of you know what nomads are, people who move from place to place. They have no permanent home. You might think of the Bedouins in their tents or perhaps gypsies in their caravans. Nomads are always on the move. And I was thinking of the Israelites on the move for 40 years in the wilderness, and I called them nomads. 
But I was told in no uncertain terms, no, they were not nomads. These people were pilgrims. These were people with a definite destination in mind. There was some place that they were going. They were on the move, but they were not wandering. They were heading somewhere. Nomads wander from place to place in search of fresh grass for their animals or a new town to set up their traveling carnival. But pilgrims, pilgrims are relentlessly moving toward a single destination. There's some place they're trying to reach, some destination where they expect to receive some longed-for blessing. The Israelites were pilgrims, but they were not nomads. In our reading this morning from Numbers chapter 10, we see the children of Israel finally setting out, finally taking their first definite steps toward the promised land, toward the land that had been promised to Abraham way back when he was living in Ur of the Chaldees. You remember that Abram was 75 years old when God said to him, leave your country and leave your people, leave your father's family and go to the country that I will show you. I will build a great nation out of you, God says. I will bless you. I will make you famous. People will use your name to bless other people. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will use you to bless all of the people of the earth. And when Abram reaches the land of Canaan, God tells him, I will give this land to your descendants. Interestingly, however, it wasn't long before there was a famine in that land and Abram and his people have to go down into Egypt, at least for a while. It will be Abraham's great-grandson Joseph who will be sold as a slave into Egypt and then later he will save his entire family, his 11 brothers and his father Jacob who is also called Israel who then all settle with Jacob there in, um, I mean uh, with Joseph there in Egypt in the land of Goshen. But as time passes, the descendants of Israel not living in the land that God promised them, but living in a rich and powerful kingdom, the descendants of Israel become slaves within a powerful worldly system. Over the course of 400 years, the Israelites descend into slavery. They were not living where God wanted them to live. They were not living how God wanted them to live. There's a funny thing about slavery to worldly systems. It's not always so bad, especially if the system that you're working for is very rich and very powerful like Egypt was. It wasn't always so bad. The Israelites had good food to eat. They were surrounded by beautiful buildings and rich culture. They were part of the most powerful nation on earth. The Egyptians did not suffer from famines or military invasions. Egypt was such a nice place to live that when the Israelites got out into the wilderness, they complained and they asked to go back. There are modern forms of slavery where the slaves are there by choice. In corporate America, they talk about golden handcuffs which are financial incentives to keep executives in jobs that they actually hate. You're making so much money. 
You get used to having a certain amount of income and you find that you just can't leave even though what you're doing is wrong for you. And of course there are addictions which are slavery. We live in a highly addicted culture. That may be the main feature of our modern culture is that we are a culture that is addicted. That's one of the dangers of being so rich. We can buy anything we want. Booze, sex, drugs, endless entertainment. And what at first is a pleasure turns into a torment. What at first promises us freedom becomes for us a slavery. We have a lot of enslaved people in our wealthy society, but try to set one of these modern slaves free, and you will soon discover that they're not too eager to escape their chains. What? Turn off my iPhone that I scroll through for five hours a day? Seriously? You think I have a problem with drinking just because I get drunk every once in a while? People don't cry out for help until they've hit rock bottom. But even then, typically, once they're back on their feet, nine times out of ten, they'll go straight back to the thing that caused the trouble in the first place. The Israelites were slaves. They didn't start out that way in Egypt, but that's how it ended up. At some point, the slavery became more and more cruel and oppressive, and finally they cried out for relief, and so God sends Moses to extract them out of the only country that they knew. Yeah, that's right. Every single person in this story, every single person that Moses leads out into the wilderness was born in Egypt. Every single Israelite spoke the Egyptian language. And yes, the Israelites worshipped Egyptian gods, which is only natural. The Israelites who cried out wanted relief from exploitation and oppression, but God wanted something greater for them. God wanted these people to have a relationship with him, the one true and living God. God wanted them to be his people. God wanted this bunch of nobodies to become a holy and a separated nation, a nation that would be a blessing to all nations. Now that's not what the unhappy Israelites cried out for, but it's what God had in mind. We often cry out to God when things get really bad in our lives. We ask for help, we ask for relief, we ask for mercy, and we usually have a pretty clear idea of what a good answer to our prayers might look like. Dear God, help me with my bills, I'm going under, we might pray. Hoping that God's going to send us a winning lottery ticket. But God's answer to that prayer might be to tell us to stop spending so much money and go get a second job. Dear God, my husband is driving me crazy. We might pray, hoping that God will get our spouse finally into therapy. But God's answer might be that he shows us the sin in our own lives. 
The Israelites cry out for relief from the oppression of the Egyptians. They know what they want God to do, but God has his own plans for these people. God takes them into the wilderness. God gives them his law at Mount Sinai. God tells them that worshiping other gods or making idols will no longer be allowed. Now, the Ten Commandments are so familiar to us, but how strange they must have seemed to the Israelites when they first read them, when they first heard them. This God who rescued the Israelites out of Egypt did so not for their benefit, but for his own holy purpose. The Israelites wanted to live without the lash of the Egyptians, but God wanted them to live a life of obedience to him. They wanted to eat their fish and their onions in peace, but God wanted them to become a holy people, a people who would worship him. The Israelites cry out for relief from economic exploitation and political oppression, but God has a higher and a deeper and a bigger and a more comprehensive salvation in mind. Look, if God had rescued the Israelites from economic oppression, but left them still worshiping Isis and Osira and Ra and Horus and Toth, if God had rescued them from political oppression and left them still reading the Egyptian book of the dead with its endless magic spells to navigate the demons of the afterlife, if God had rescued the Israelites from the troubles of this world, but failed to tell them the truth about the larger reality beyond this world and the truth about the world to come, then God would not be good or loving. He would, in fact, be cruel and hateful. Don't get me wrong. God's law opposes economic exploitation and political oppression. According to Scripture, a righteous nation protects foreigners and poor people, and women and children, including children who are still in the womb. According to Scripture, a righteous judge rules with fairness and creates a level playing field for everyone. According to Scripture, in a righteous nation, there, are, there is no special treatment for special classes of people. Everyone is treated fairly. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation. And the word exalt means to lift up, to make great. If we want to make this nation great, then we need to make it righteous. That's what the Bible teaches. But here's a warning. Beware those people who say there is no God or that religion is the opiate of the masses, beware those people who promise rescue from economic exploitation and political oppression at the price of denying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because without God, all we do is trade one kind of slavery for another, one kind of oppression for another. In the history of this planet, no system of government has been more murderous or more oppressive than Marxism, which promised to break the chains of the working class. Only a nation under God, submitted to God, can promise liberty and justice for all of its people. 
So God gives the Israelites a law that will set them free from exploitation and oppression. And God organizes the entire nation, more than a million people in tents, around the central tabernacle where he alone is worshipped. God establishes a system for dealing with our deeper problem, which is sin and alienation from God. And God assures the Israelites of his presence with them by the special favor of the visible sign of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It takes about a year for all of this to get set up. And then the big day comes, moving day. They're out of Egypt, but the Sinai wilderness is not to be their home. Neither will they be nomads wandering around in the desert. Instead, they're going to be pilgrims, and they're going to have a particular destination in mind. They're hitting the road with the goal of reaching the promised land. Verse 11 and 12 say, On the 20th day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites left Egypt, the cloud rose from above the tent of the agreement. So the Israelites began their journey. And then in verse 29, Moses says, We are traveling to the land where the Lord, to the land that the Lord promised to give to us. They're on the road at last. Now, there's nothing that I love more than hitting the road and going on a road trip. The planning is done, the preparation is over, the car has been serviced, the tank is full. You make your last stop at the Dunkin' Donuts, and then you hit the turnpike. It doesn't matter whether you're heading north or east or west, as long as wherever you're heading is not here, and the cares seem to melt away as the odometer marks the miles you put behind you. It's good to be on the road. It's good to be moving forward toward some goal. It's good to be drawing closer and closer with each passing hour to the place that you have anticipated being for some long time. I don't know how the Israelites did it. More than a million people packing up tents and animals and children and heading off from Sinai to Paran. But it must have been a relief to finally get going. And they are finally heading to the land that God promised their ancestor Abraham, a land that would be their permanent home. So what does all of this mean for us as Christians? How is this more than just ancient Israelite history? Many of you are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, the so-called faith chapter. It begins... Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen and it offers a litany of heroes of the faith who had lived and had died before our time, heroes who are examples to us. We hear about Abel and about Enoch and about Noah and about Abraham and though Abraham reached Canaan, the Bible tells us that he lived in Canaan in tents, quote, like a stranger in a foreign country. Abraham did not put down roots. He did not build himself a city. And the Bible tells us he did this because, quote, he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. So what city is that? Abraham is in the promised land. 
He's living in what we now call Israel, but even there he's waiting for something else. Even there in Canaan, Abraham does not cling to the things that are around him. He moves from place to place in his tent because he's expecting something more. He's searching for a city with foundations. That means it's a sizable city. It's not just a village, and it's a city that's been designed and built by God. What city is that? And how did it make sense for Abraham to spend his whole life in tents? He was a wealthy man. He owned large herds of animals. He had many people working for him. He could have purchased a beautiful estate and had a fine house built if he wanted. He had the means, but he keeps on moving living lightly in the land that had been promised to his descendants. In verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 11, we read, all of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they left, Abraham left Ur and Moses left Egypt, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And because of that, God was not ashamed to be called their God for he had prepared a city for them. What city is that? In Revelation chapter 21, we have the scene after King Jesus wins the final battle over Satan. We read, this is John speaking, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. That's this one, the one that we're living in had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, who's who's speaking there? Well, this is God himself speaking. He's got a big voice. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe, this is God speaking, he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. End quote. Now back to John. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. That's the city. That's the city Abraham was looking for. It's called New Jerusalem. And New Jerusalem is a real place. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a pipe dream. It's not an allegory. It's a concrete place. And it is our real home. It's our final home. It's our permanent home. New Jerusalem is the homeland that we long for but have yet to see. During the Last Supper, 
Jesus was with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, and he's, he's telling them that he's going to have to go away, and he's telling them to not be upset. He tells them that he's going away so that he can prepare for them a place so that they can be with him. He tells them that in his father's house there are many rooms. There is a specially prepared place for each one of us. He is, of course, talking about New Jerusalem, the city on the new earth that is the final destination of all who are in Christ. It turns out it's a city that's been built by Jesus. Now, Christians have always believed in heaven. And we've always believed that there is a life after this life. We have always believed that this life is just the opening act for eternity. We have always believed that death is not the end of our story. And we have always believed that there are two and only two final destinations. Here's how chapter 32 of the Westminster Confession explains some of these things. Quote, after death, the bodies of human beings decompose and turn to dust. But their souls, which do not die or sleep, have an e- immortal existence and immediately return to God who created them. The souls of the righteous are then perfected in holiness and are received into the highest heaven where they behold the face of God in light and glory and wait for the full redemption of their bodies. The souls of the wicked are thrown into hell where they remain in torment and complete darkness set apart for the great day of judgment. Scripture recognizes only these two places and no other for souls separated from their bodies, end quote. Christians believe these things because this is what the Bible teaches. Now, there are some who reject this fundamental Christian belief. Some who reject this fundamental Christian belief, of course, are atheists. Well, they're not very interesting. But there are other people who call themselves Christian, who have trouble with the doctrine of heaven and hell because they say that it distracts us from solving the problems of this world. If all the church has to offer those who are suffering is pie in the sky and the sweet by and by, well, the church isn't doing a very good job of fixing this world. If all the church has to offer those who are oppressed is the promise that evil tyrants will burn forever in hell, well, the church isn't doing a very good job of fixing this world. Rather than preaching about heaven and hell, the church should preach about social justice because social justice is about fixing those things in the here and the now. That's what some would say. Now, I want to offer three quick reasons why the church should not abandon the historic teaching about heaven and hell and the eternal afterlife, why it should cling to that teaching and cherish that teaching. Number one, we should teach about heaven and hell and the eternal afterlife because Jesus and the apostles taught that. That's pretty basic. Of course, there are megalomaniacs and fools who think that they can improve upon the teachings of Jesus. As Christians, we should only teach what Christ taught. And he taught heaven and hell. 
Number two, because we are bound for an eternal promised land, I'm sorry, knowing we are bound for an eternal promised land changes how we live this life and it changes it for the better. It changes us from being fearful, wandering nomads into being confident, purpose-filled pilgrims. The apostles were simple men who lived in a world that was dangerous and filled with oppression, but they met the resurrected Jesus and they knew that there was eternal bliss for them beyond the grave, which is why persecution and the threat of execution did not scare them. They had no fear of earthly power, and as a result, they lived as free men. A slave is only a slave until he is no longer afraid of the lash. And when you know that people can put your body to death, but your soul goes on to better things, well, all of a sudden you're able to act rightly, to do rightly, to be brave, to make moral decisions, even in the face of deadly threats. Knowing that we are heaven-bound allows us to live in this world light-hearted, joy-filled, and free-spirited. Knowing that we belong to Christ and are headed to New Jerusalem, that allows no one to hold us down or to oppress us. And number three, there is something deep in the human heart that tells us to believe in heaven and hell and in an eternal afterlife. All of us were created with a desire for, a longing for, a room in the house that God made in New Jerusalem. All of us are longing to be in that place free of death and free of mourning and free of crying and free of grief in that place that is filled with the fullness and the light of God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has put eternity into the human heart. And because of that innate longing, we find that we are always restless until we rest in God, as St. Augustine said it. Now, the atheist, Sigmund Freud, would say that the longing for heaven is foolishness. That religion is just naive wish fulfillment. I think Freud is as wrong as Marx was. I think C.S. Lewis has a more intelligent analysis of this in mere Christianity. Here's what Lewis writes. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such a thing as water. We feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfies this desire that does not presume, uh, prove that the universe is a fraud, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other hand never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. So how often do we think about heaven and about the new Jerusalem? How often are the choices that we make made because in the back of our minds we know that we're bound for another world, for a better world? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not pile up treasure for yourself here on earth. Moths and rust will destroy Those treasures, thieves will break into your house and steal those treasures. Instead, save your treasures in heaven where they cannot be destroyed. Your heart will be where your treasure is. So where is our treasure? Where is our heart? The difference between a nomad and a pilgrim is that a pilgrim knows where he's going. And that changes how we live and travel in this life. We pilgrims, we don't wander aimlessly. Everything in our life is for a purpose. Our lives have a goal. The book of Numbers is about the pilgrimage of God's people in the wilderness. It's about the purposeful journey of God's people toward the promised land. It is an image, a foreshadowing of the Christian journey. Lots of preparation is required. God doesn't fly the Israelites to Canaan on a magic carpet. First he gives them his law. Then he prepares them, provides them with a system to deal with sin. And then God gives them 40 years of discipline and training as they make this journey in the wilderness. It's a long journey, but it's a sweet journey because it's a journey toward the promised land. So how about you? Are you bound for the promised land? We don't see heaven because we are good. We see heaven because we've been united to Christ and he is good. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sins and asked for the blood of Christ to make you spotless? Because we're told in Scripture that only the spotless will enter New Jerusalem. Only those who've been washed in the blood of Christ. Let us pray. Lord God, you have placed us in this big and lovely universe and yet you have revealed to us that there's something beyond what we see. 
And when we hear that, it sounds right. It resonates uh, with something in our heart. We look at this world with all of its troubles and its pains and its death and its meanness. And we wonder, is this all that there is? You have assured us that you have claimed a people for yourself and that you will gather them into the new Jerusalem. We pray this day that you would give us the faith to trust you in your promises. We pray that we would turn aside from the things that keep us away from you. Lord, I pray that this world would not uh, deceive us or allure us and distract us from things that are eternally important. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us uh, for that day when we see you face to face. We're looking forward to that. I pray that you give us uh, a little tastes along the way of what it's going to be like to be with you and to be with all of the saints in that endless feast, that endless celebration. Lord, you are a perfect God and you have made a perfect world for us to meet you in one day. Help us, equip us, lead us, guide us, claim us. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.